Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. And his truth endureth to all generations. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray together. O God, eternal glory of the heavens, Make us enter thy gates with confession and thy courts with praise, that giving thanks to thy majesty, we may receive at thy hands the crown of life, which thou hast promised to them that love thee. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father who is gracious, for he hath given his Son for us. Glory be to the Son whose mercy is everlasting, as he ever pleads for us the death which he endured for our sakes. Glory be to the Holy Ghost the comforter and teacher of the church, whose truth endureth from generation to generation of Christians unto the end of the world, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we continue on through the Westminster Shorter Catechism together, and we come now to question six. Let's read uh, read this together and then uh, consider its truth. Uh, Question six asks, How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The doctrine of the Trinity, together with the incarnation of Christ, is the hardest and highest mystery of the Christian faith. St. Augustine writes at the beginning of his book on the Trinity that in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. To inquire into who God is as Trinity is a dangerous, daunting, and glorious task. And yet Jesus says in John seventeen three that this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. God wants us to know him, and he wants us to know him as he has revealed himself in his word. It is possible by the means of human reason to know that there is only one God who is creator and judge, Romans 1.20. But the knowledge that there are three co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial persons in the Godhead is impossible to arrive at by way of natural reason or natural revelation. To know God as Trinity, and therefore to receive eternal life from him, requires two things. 
Number one, it requires supernatural revelation. And secondly, it requires the grace of faith. It is by faith in God's word that we come to know God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Scripture forces us through many passages to say and conclude that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet these are not three gods, but one God. How this is possible is beyond human reason, and yet it does not in any way contradict human reason. The Trinity is not a logical fallacy. It is not a logical contradiction. In theology, we make an important distinction here between that things are and how things are. For example, that God is Trinity can be known by the simplest and dullest believer who just hears the word and believes. But knowing how God is Trinity is a work of our faith seeking understanding that begins in this life and continues on into the next. We will never fully comprehend who God is, for the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. But it is in this space between simple faith and our desire for greater understanding that God wants worship to spring forth in our hearts. For God does not merely want to be studied. He wants to be worshiped. And that is what the doctrine of the Trinity should stir us to do. So as we prepare to confess our sins, consider these words of meditation from uh, St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He says this, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. To contemplate this mystery should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen to stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. These are the words of God. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given, and he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. And he said, So is the kingdom of God. 
as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Mark's gospel. We thank you for the revelation of the kingdom that you have given unto us. And we ask for the spirit of illumination to be given unto us now as we seek to understand what we hear. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And amen. 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 Well, last week we encountered the very first parable in Mark's gospel, the parable of the seeds or soils. And this morning we have four more parables to try to figure out. Uh, We remember Jesus said that if we do not understand that first parable, then we will not understand any of the others. So uh, this morning we get to practice now our interpretation skills and see if we can grasp the mystery of the kingdom. So if you are someone who likes a good riddle, uh, here are four riddles for you to interpret. I'll give you the uh, kind of division of the text, the outline of the text. Uh, In verses 21 to 23, we have uh, what we'll call the parable of the candle or the parable of the lamp. In verses 24 to 25, we have the parable of measurement. In verses 26 to 29, we have the parable of the growing seed. And then in verses 30 to 32, we have the parable of the mustard seed. So we'll uh, walk through these uh, one at a time together, starting with uh, the parable of the candle. So verses 21 to 23 says, And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel? A bushel here is a bowl or a basket of some sort. uh, Or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick. For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. Neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If anyone have ears to hear, let him hear. Um, There's some uh, ambiguity about Uh, who the them is that Jesus is talking to. If you remember last week, Jesus was explaining the parable of the soils to his 12 disciples. And then Mark just kind of says, he just gives us these other parables. It refers to them as as them. Um, It's possible it refers to the disciples still. uh, But based on how this section ends in verse 34, where there the them refers to the crowds, Uh, It's probably likely that Mark is just jumping back now to that public teaching time where uh, no explanation of the parables is given because we are not given uh, any explanation of these parables here. So uh, whatever the case, we're kind of left on our own together with the Holy Spirit to figure out what these uh, parables mean. What we do know already 
is that uh, these are all parables about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we should also know that based on how Jesus interpreted that parable of the soils, there is not necessarily always a one-to-one connection between uh, the sign and the thing signified. So sometimes a sign like seed or a sower or a light can actually have multiple significations. Uh, So for example, we saw in the parable of the soils that uh, what does seed represent in the parable of the soils? Well, it, it represents the word, but what also does it represent? It represents people, okay? So uh, th- this makes things a little more uh, complicated. The seed can represent God's word. It can represent the gospel. It's the message of the kingdom. And it also represents different kinds of people who respond to that message and all in the same parable. Uh, one of the best rules for interpreting scripture or really here interpreting a sign or a symbol is to just first see how does the rest of scripture use and interpret that symbol. That's, you know, a a somewhat foolproof way to go. Just see how does scripture interpret scripture. So uh, we'll practice this a little bit here. We'll spend a little more time on this first one. And then, you know, I will leave you to, to work on some of these others in your own time. But in our parable here, the first one, parable of the candle, we, we might first ask, what does a candle or, or a lamp uh, represent in the rest of Holy Scripture? Where do we see these objects? Uh, we know at the most basic level what a lamp is, right? A lamp is not something that you turn on outside. <laughs> it's something that illuminates a dark place. Uh, a lamp is a light in the darkness. And This should call to mind for for us really the creation of light in Genesis 1, right? God saw uh, the world was uh, without form and void, and he said, let there be light. Or we see on day four, the creation of the stars to give light to the earth. We know from the book of Exodus that there were lamps and lampstands where? Inside of the tabernacle. Yeah, and also inside of the temple. These uh, lamps and lampstands are themselves symbolic of the stars in the firmament. If you go to Revelation uh, 1.20, it says this, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Okay, so Revelation is kind of the... uh, Uh, It's the revelation of all the symbols that you've been given in the Bible. And you really cannot understand revelation unless you already know how all those symbols are used in the rest of Scripture. Uh, So if you continue reading Revelation, you actually learn that those seven stars, which are angels, are pastors. They're the pastors of the seven churches. So now you think lights are stars, stars are angels, angels are pastors, pastors are preachers of the word. And what do you know? Psalm 119 says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We read also in 2 Samuel 22 that David says, For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. We read in Proverbs 13:9 that the light of the righteous rejoiceth, but the lamp of the wicked shall be put out. So there the lamp refers to the light of the mind or the spirit, what you might call the intellectual life, which men have. We see in Isaiah 62, it says, 
For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness, uh, uh, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. So if I were to ask you, uh, what is a lamp in scripture? (laughs) Uh, There are many right answers, right? A lamp can refer to God. It can refer to God's word. It can refer to pastors who preach that word. It can refer to the light of the mind. It can also refer to salvation and righteousness. That is the kind of full symbolic package uh, that is a lamp or a candle in the Bible. So when Jesus says, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick, uh, there's a good chance that because Jesus wrote the rest of the Bible, right? He is God, uh, that a candle refers to one or all of those things here. And so to have all of those verses that I just read to you in your mind, to have all those associations in your mind when you hear candle or lamp is part of how you get ears to hear God's word. So what is uh, the candle in this parable? What is the candle in this parable? Well, first and foremost, I believe it refers to Jesus and his teaching. This is a little obscured in most English translations, but the sense of the Greek text here is that the candle comes or cometh. Uh, That's how it is in the King James. It says brought, uh, but really um, it says cometh here. And this is a very odd way of describing Uh, the arrival of light somewhere. Usually candles don't just come on their own, hence why the translators say brought, right? That's a little more natural. But if you uh, read it very literally, it's just saying, you know, uh, does a lamp come that it might be put under a bushel? And uh, the implication here is that uh, this coming is the coming of a person, namely the coming of Christ who Uh, we know, is the light of the world. Listen to how John describes Jesus in the beginning of his gospel. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, if we think back to all of those Old Testament examples of what a lamp is, uh, we can see that really all of them fit here. The coming of Jesus is the coming of God. It is the incarnation of God's word. It is the arrival of salvation and righteousness and life for men. All those things that a lamp is in the Old Testament, Jesus comes and brings in himself. We might also say that more specifically in this context, the candle refers especially to the words Jesus speaks, his teaching, these parables. These parables, like Jesus' divine identity, is hidden to some but revealed to others. It all depends on if they have ears to hear and eyes to see. If you know what a candle is, what a lamp is in Scripture, then you might have a good hint as to who this Jesus is that is preaching in parables. Now, uh, if the candle is uh, Jesus and his teaching, then what might the bushel and the bed refer to? Well, you know, we could go do this uh, exercise again, look up uh, bushels and beds in scripture. Uh, We we don't know for sure what these signify, but I think it's likely that they uh, 
refer to his eventual death. These things that have the potential to cover or smother the light. Jesus says in John 3:19, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So the lamp comes and is meant to be set on a candlestick. That is, it's meant to have central place amongst the people of God in the temple or in the church. But because men hate that light, they will try to put it under a basket or a bed. They are going to crucify the light. They are going to try to silence his teaching. And then they are going to persecute everyone else who proclaims that light. That is, I think, the bushel and the bed. Jesus then concludes this parable by saying, For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. Neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. So you have both the concealed identity of Jesus and the concealed truth of his teaching that is going to eventually be made manifest. They're going to try to smother the light. They're going to try to put it under a bushel, but it's not going to work. It's going to be manifest everywhere. It's going to come abroad. And uh, the mystery of the kingdom that is presently hidden is going to be revealed, which is what the 27 books of the New Testament are, right? The very fact that we are, uh, have access to these parables as Mark is giving them to us is proof positive of what uh, Jesus is prophesying here. Nothing hid, uh, uh, there's nothing hid which shall not be manifested. So these are the hidden and secret things made manifest uh, now in the New Testament. Moving on to verses uh, 24 to 25, Jesus gives another parable now about understanding this revelation. So it's going to come. You cannot stop it. They might try, but uh, darkness cannot comprehend the light. But still, not everyone loves the light. So here we have now uh, what I like to call the parable of measurement, parable of measurement. And Jesus said unto them, take heed what ye hear. Uh, More literally here, it actually says, uh, see what you hear. That would be uh, what's underneath that uh, English phrase, take heed. See what you hear. With what measure ye meet, or measure, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that has, to him shall be given. And he that has not, from him shall be taken, even that which he has." This is, I think, a a more straightforward parable and is something we might expect to find in a book like uh, Proverbs. And if I've not mentioned this already, uh, proverb and parable are the exact same word in Greek. So uh, parables are proverbs and there's overlap between what you think of a proverb, you know, a little two line uh, aphorism. Uh, The book of Proverbs itself has many other things besides that. So parables, proverbs, same word, same idea. Here we have what we more think of as Proverbs, this kind of wise aphorism about how the world works. And uh, in our day, we might say something like, uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's kind of a modern parable of sorts. The principle here is that if you are generous in your measuring out of what you give to others, then God will be generous to you. But if you are stingy or deceitful in your measuring when you're you know, doing business in the marketplace, then you're going to get back the same. 
As Paul says in Galatians 6-7, God is not mocked, a man reaps what he sows. Or again in 2 Corinthians 9-6, he which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall also reap bountifully. So the principle of this parable is this idea of divine reciprocity. And the analogy that Jesus is making then is between what happens economically, what happens in the marketplace with material things, and what happens internally when people hear spiritual things. The one that already has faith and knowledge and love for God is going to receive even more by working on these parables, by hearing these parables. But the one who lacks faith and the one who doesn't really have any interest in the things of God is only going to be made worse by hearing them. Their heart is hard, and therefore Jesus says, even what little he has will be taken from him. So just as there is often a growing economic inequality between the haves and the have-nots, so also there is a growing spiritual inequality. And we are very much seeing this play out before our eyes in America right now, right? Persecution comes or some kind of conflict comes and it purifies the church. It winnows the church and uh, people who are just nominal believers may fall away, but then the church is actually strengthened as a result. So those who are glorious go from glory to glory. And those who are, you know, fools gold are revealed for what they are. So uh, this is what parables come to do. Uh, This is what the truth does when it comes into the world. The people who love truth, they find it, and God gives them even more. And then the people who hate the truth or are false to the truth or reject it, they lose what little truth they already had. This parable is another way of saying that uh, you get out of the word what you bring to it. You get out of the worship service, you get out of the sermon what you bring to it. If you come hungry and attentive and thankful and zealous to know and praise God, well, then this worship service will be of great benefit to you. But if you come skeptical and selfish and resistant to obey God's word, well, then you might as well go somewhere else. Why are you here? (laughs) You're wasting your time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, the same sun that melts wax hardens the clay. And that's what every sermon is. That's what every occasion for the word coming is. It either can melt you and then mold you into the image of Christ, or it can just harden you, make you even more without the moisture of God's grace. So to those who have, more will be given. And to those who have not, even what little they have will be taken from them. This is a sober and uh, a very unpopular truth. But this is what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. Moving on now to the parable of the growing seed, verses 26 to 29. And he said, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. We might think of this parable 
as an extension of Jesus' first parable on the different seeds and soils, except that here we're focusing just on the good seed and how it grows. So we're kind of zooming in now on the life of the good seed. The word is planted in the hearts of men. The human preacher or sower of the word does not really know how it grows. He preaches, he goes to sleep, he gets up the next day, and over time, the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. Uh, The Greek adjective here is automate, uh, which uh, uh, is where we get our English word automatic from. And it refers, of course, to something that happens without any visible cause. It's something that happens by itself. The earth bringeth forth fruit automatically of herself. The Apostle Paul reflects on this reality, perhaps even was reflecting on this parable in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says this, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. The mystery of the kingdom is that God is the invisible cause of its growth. Just as a farmer plants seed by faith, so also should Jesus' disciples proclaim the word. We don't know why some people receive and some people don't. Why some people seem to be exceedingly fruitful and, you know, uh, abounding with the fruit of the spirit. And others were like, I don't know if anything's there. This is a mystery to us. And it's really not our business. Right? This is something that you know, God says, I want you to do these things. I want you to sow. I want you to water. You know, do the weeding you need to do. But you just leave the growth of the thing up to God. Right? You don't keep ripping it out of the ground to check the roots to see how it's doing and put it back in. Right? We want to know. We want to understand how these things work. And Jesus is just saying, you know, the sower does not know how uh, the, the fruit comes. We cannot see into the soil of men's hearts, but we can see and judge the fruit of their lives. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. And when that fruit comes to maturity, that is when the sickle goes in. That is when the harvest of souls comes. In the Hebrew calendar, calendar, uh, it really revolves around Uh, the harvest or various harvests. So there are multiple harvest festivals in uh, the Hebrew calendar. You have the first fruits offering after Passover in the early spring. Then there is the feast of Pentecost 50 days later. And then there is the great feast of ingathering or tabernacles in the fall. And what all of these harvests signify to one extent or another is the judgment of our works the examination of what is growing in our lives and the separation of wheat from the chaff. You're meant to learn from these very natural things that man has been doing from the very beginning, that there is a resurrection of the dead, that there is a final judgment. When the farmer goes out there and he starts chopping things down, the one who has ears to hear and eyes to see knows God's going to do this to me one day. Okay. This this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you are a fool if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, because don't you know, you put a little seed in the ground and then something totally different comes out that's that's more glorious. 
right? Anyone who just reflects on that basic human reality should know that, of course, there's a resurrection of, of the dead. That's, that's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. So what all of these harvests signify is judgment. This is how, the way if you look up, you know, a sickle in the Bible or harvest in the Bible, it's going to refer to a final judgment. So the sense of this parable then is that God's kingdom grows, but it grows in a very hidden, mysterious, and invisible way. But it is growing towards a very visible and glorious end, the great harvest festival of final judgment. Just as the Hebrew calendar has many, many harvests throughout the year, so also the Christian life is marked by God's pruning and harvesting of our fruit along the way. Every Lord's Day, every week is a miniature harvest where we are gathered in. We are the ecclesia. We are the church. We are uh, judged by God's word. We are pruned. We say, ouch. And then we are sent back out to go and bear more fruit. And eventually, all of us, good and bad, are going to be gathered in at death. And we are going to stand before the Lord to give an account for what was growing out of us, to give an account for our works. And so we should treat every Sunday, every Lord's Day, as preparation for that final day of the Lord. A harvest is coming, and Jesus says, so you need to take heed how you hear. Finally, we come to the parable of the mustard seed, verses 30 to 32. And Jesus said, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it, when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. Of all the possible trees that Jesus could have used to describe the kingdom of God, uh, it should be surprising to you that he chooses a mustard tree. Why does he do this? Well, there are a few few reasons here. First uh, is the obvious one, and that is because the mustard seed was for them the smallest of all seeds. You can see it if you look closely, but it would certainly not stand out to you as significant. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, just a tiny little thing. And this is the way that God sows his kingdom in the earth. Isaiah prophesied that when the Christ comes, he shall grow up before the Lord as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's Isaiah 53, 3. Nobody looks at a mustard seed and says, wow, that's a beautiful and impressive seed. Give me that. But that is how God chose to enter the world and plant his kingdom. And church history is the story of that little mustard seed growing into something greater than all herbs. What began with Jesus and the 12 grows to 120 disciples at Pentecost. Then after Peter's sermon, there's a harvest of 3,000. After a little bit longer, it's 5,000. And today, 2.2 billion professing Christians on planet Earth. This brings us to what I think is the second reason that Jesus chose the mustard seed. 
And that is that the mustard tree is very unlike the other great trees of the earth. And Jesus wants us to know that his kingdom is of a different species than the kingdoms of men. He says explicitly to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus' kingdom is not from here. In both Ezekiel and Daniel, and Daniel, kingdoms like Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt are all likened to great trees that stretch to the heavens. They are likened to the great cedars of Lebanon. Earthly kingdoms have this impressive and visible greatness that makes people stand back in awe because you can see its size. But the mustard tree, even when it is fully grown, is only about 10 feet tall, right? That's you dunking a basketball. Maybe that's John dunking a basketball, (laughs) right? Not me. 10 feet, okay? It's it's impressive if you're, you know, our, our height, but, you know, it's not a redwood in California. It does not have the same imposing and visible presence that a great cedar or redwood has. If anything, uh, especially in ancient times, the mustard tree had a reputation for being a dangerous and invasive species, almost like a weed. Uh, Listen to what Pliny the Elder, he he was a Roman scientist who lived during the time of Christ. Uh, Listen to what he says about the mustard tree. He says, it grows entirely wild though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. When you look at the history of Christ's kingdom for the last 2,000 years, it has grown very much like the mustard seed. It has been transplanted in many a foreign soil, and it has been hard to uproot. Consider the fact that we are here in Centralia, some 7,000 miles from where that mustard seed was planted in Jerusalem. And yet, here's the kingdom, right? Turn to your neighbor. There is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. It is the word of God and the reign of God inside the people of God. This is the kingdom of God. You guys are mustard, right? We are mustard. So, The kingdom being like a mustard tree, it is truly a kingdom. It is truly a tree. It's a great tree. But it is truly unlike every other tree and every other kingdom on earth. You know, you hear that number, 2.2 billion Christians, professing Christians on planet earth were the dominant religion. And yet you look out and you think, it doesn't really feel like we're the dominant religion, right? we're a mustard tree, right? We're, we're, not, the, uh, uh, we're not the United States. Uh, we're not the United Nations. We're not some great, you know, we're not what the Roman Catholic Church thinks they are, this great institution, right? We're something else. We're a tree, but we're a different species. There are, of course, more details in this parable that we could study and meditate upon, and I commend you to do that, right? Uh, consider, you read some of the church fathers on this, and they're going to talk about uh, the flavor of mustard and how, you know, that is a symbol of what Christians are like. You know, you can reflect on that at, at the feast or something. Uh, you can also consider uh, the meaning of the birds, which lodge in the shadow of the tree. Right. Birds in the Bible, 
they can be demons. They can be Gentiles. <laughs> they can be the contemplative man who soars over the earth, right? There are good and uh, negative associations with birds. So I'll leave that for you to consider. What are the birds that lodge in the shadow of the tree? But uh, that is for you uh, to work on. Uh, I want to close with this. Jesus says in John 12, 24, that unless a seed dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much. What is hidden but implied in all of these parables is that in order for the kingdom to grow, something must die. Someone must die. And it is through death and resurrection that God's kingdom grows and multiplies on earth, just like in nature. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the harvest. And if Jesus is the first fruits, then there is a death and resurrection that awaits all of us as well. And it is towards that final harvest that all of us should look and press onward in hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the mystery of the kingdom. We thank you for these riddles that stretch us and cause us to ponder uh, eternal and spiritual things. And God, I ask that you would give us more and more eyes to see this in your word, ears to hear it and to receive it, and that we would be generous in our measure, that you might be generous unto us. God, please seal these things up in our hearts and make us to bear much fruit and fruit that remains. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. This meal we are about to celebrate is what all of those Old Testament feasts pointed to. Passover, first fruits, Pentecost, tabernacles, all of these foreshadowed in a unique way the offering up of Christ's body and blood for us. There can be no bread without first a sharp sickle cutting down the grain. There can be no wine without someone first plucking and crushing some grapes. In order for us to receive salvation, Christ had to be cut down and harvested. This meal is a reminder of that reality, that death is not the end, and that God harvests his people in order to make them into something more glorious. If Jesus died, if Jesus died and rose never to die again, then so also will all who are united to him by faith. So come, receive him. Come and partake of his body and blood. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. As we go to uh, our feast, as you go to celebrate uh, Father's Day, uh, be generous in how you measure out love, honor, and truth to others. For with that same measure you use, God will measure back to you.